Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Capital City Comic Con that happened here in Austin, Texas on July... What day is today? Today is July 12th. So, uh, 11th, 12th, and 13th. We're doing this on this after uh, being there for the Saturday, because I've got with me Kay Kellum, uh, my sister and stuff. Yes, she's so embarrassed by me, she's changed her name. <laughs> Can't say that I blame her. Um... But since she went with me today, I figured it'd be fun to have just kind of a talk about how this show was, uh, particularly compared to shows uh, like San Diego, which is like the be-all, end-all in many respects of comic book conventions, uh, but also in terms of the other show here in Austin, one of the other two, uh, and that is the Wizard World uh, show that's here in Austin, Austin Comic Con is what they call it. I always have a problem with that because I think San Diego. Uh, but actually, the other show that they have here, I don't think you've been to, and that's Staple. No, I haven't been to Staple. I've heard about it. Staple is interesting because it's a small, small press kind of a show. Um, with, uh, like, the biggest of the publishers that I think have been there as a publisher has been uh, Red 5 Comics. And they're a huge publisher in that arena, but a small publisher in, like, the Comic-Con arena. And, you know, that's the kind of publisher that should go to both conventions. Experience being a big fish in a small pond and a small fish in a big pond. Well, what I find interesting with the Capital City Comic Con, this was the first year they've had it. Staple takes place over at the, I think, the Marrakesh Event Center, um, which is off I-35, uh, kind of up near 183. Okay. North yeah, side of town, North roughly. side of town. For locals, that, that means something for people outside of Austin. You're like, well, where is that? It doesn't matter. The point is, it's a small event center. It's what used to be like a, a two-theater movie theater. Uh, and not huge, huge theater-type space. So they have room for what in San Diego terms would be the equivalent of one of those full four-island aisles. So not even Hall A. Oh, not even, I guess in Hall A, the 100 block. Okay. In one room, and about the same in the other room. So that's, that's staple. And again, that's small press. This is fanzines, people who are just really wanting to express themselves. I mean, the creativity at that kind of place is amazing. Then, here in town, we've also got the, the Wizard World show, uh, Austin Comic Con, and that is, it's a traveling road show. And it's the same thing that we'll probably see uh, in about a month or so when we go to San Antonio for that Wizard World. Um, An experience I'm actually looking forward to, getting to go both to the San Antonio Wizard and the Austin Wizard. Yeah. Well, and it's fun, again, here, uh, being able to see this... Uh, Capital City Comic Con in light of those other two because Definitely. the the Capital City Comic Con had just a, a really impressive uh, in terms of size artist alley. Oh, and the artists! It was like every time you turned around, there was more artists, and there was one area, and 
I don't know. I didn't do enough advanced research, clearly. I don't know if it was planned this way or if it was something that just kind of sprang up on the spot. But there were these tables with paper laid out on them where people could just sit down and draw. I saw a kid doing that, and it's like... The, I thought it was really cool. If it was the kid I'm thinking of, what had me dazzled and almost thinking, you know, maybe I, if it weren't for the fact it was a kid, I probably would have pulled out my camera and said, do you mind if I take a picture? Because what captured me about it was he had a cell phone on the table in front of him and he had pulled up a piece of art he really liked on the cell phone, zoomed in on part of it, and he was trying to draw that piece of art. He was kind of on the right as we were walking past. Yeah, it's the same one I was thinking, actually. Mm-hmm. Because it was it was like he was doing his own little trading card or something. He was, yes. And I, I thought that was really cool. I was amazed how many kids there were. It was a wonderful convention for the kids. There were kids in costume. There were kids clearly enjoying sharing the fandom with their parents. And this, differentiating it from other conventions, this was a convention with a very low media presence, very few actors, which I appreciated about it. But of the actors that were present, most of them were Power Rangers, which... Well, it was interesting because of the celebrities they had, of the actors they had, they had, uh, starting with the non-Power Ranger ones, they had uh, Manu Bennett from currently Arrow, but from Spartacus. They had, um, I'm blanking on his, his name, uh, Francis... Uh, Frank Chow? Uh, Frank Chow, yeah. The, the guy who played, who was in, uh, who played Shredder in the old, uh, old, the 90s, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, and played, I believe, the scientist on Lost who did all the Dharma training films. Um, but then they had a couple of Power Rangers. They had the guy who played, uh, it was, uh, uh, Rocky, uh, Steve Caradinas, I believe. I'm doing this from memory. I should have had notes in front of me. My bad. And they didn't hand us a program of any kind as we walked in. They didn't hand us a list of what was where or who to look for, which is part of why we're doing this from memory. I also went to their website this morning uh, to go get a map of the floor and see where people were. And it it was having like a database connection problem or something. It's one of those things. This is the first year of this convention. So I expect a couple of rough edges, a couple of things. And in the middle of your convention, are you going to worry how your website's doing for a page? Probably not. Unfortunate, understandable. Now, the flip side of that is I hit the website last night just to double check, basically, what have I agreed to go to and what have I gotten myself into in agreeing to go to this convention. And that was how I found out about one of my highlights of the day. I got to be in, shall we call it, the group mugshot and lineup of Guardians of the Galaxy. And that was up on their website as a Marvel will have this opportunity come to the green screen and we will Photoshop you in to the lineup with the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm trying to figure out who they might have taken out or if they just expanded the middle section a little to make room for the drop-in person. I think they expanded the middle section. I think so too. Just dropped you in. Uh... I am KYLN prisoner, and I have a prisoner number, and, you know, on the one hand, I tried to get the pose of a prisoner, and then on the other hand, you can't help but kind of smile at all the people walking by, kind of laughing, going, what are you doing over there in front of a green screen? Well, it was one of those things, we'd actually walked by that thing at one point without really noticing it, 
There was a huge crowd we couldn't see past, and the first time we walked by, I couldn't even see the green screen. Okay, I didn't notice the green screen, and if you hadn't mentioned what it was, walking by it the second time when you did get in line for that, I I didn't know what it was, if you hadn't have told me. Yeah, I figured out what it was because I saw the pictures coming off the printer, and I had seen the stuff on the webpage saying it would be there. Yeah. But there was no clear sign saying, this is Guardians of the Galaxy, come get in the uh, lineup with the other prisoners. And they had posters for the movie, which I very happily picked one up. I liked the art on the poster. I'm looking forward to the film. It sounds like a lot of fun, very Star Wars-ish vibe in many respects. And they had, like you said, the posters out on the table and a lot of stuff on the table. So if you get up to the booth, you can tell what it is. But if you're a couple of feet away, there are a couple of people blocking what's on the table, you can't tell. And that's, that's frankly, on the people running the booth, not the convention, of course. And I think that was a necessity of the booth because they had to have the green screen and they couldn't have things hanging up over I, it I and stuff. I could see not on the green so, screen, but they also had a different backdrop off to the left of that. Yes. They had somewhere they could have put some signage. Yeah. But it comes down to everybody running their own booth is going to do things a little differently and just what they think is best. In some cases, I think it works out better than others. Um, but this was, again, it was interesting because you've got that. You've got the, the two celebrities we talked about, the couple of Power Rangers. Again, the original the original replacement Red Ranger, who later became the Blue Ranger, who then got a back injury and got replaced by two. Mm. Anyways, that was the one guy. They had the uh, Samurai Red Ranger, the, uh, sil- uh, I guess it was the Gold... Silver or gold red uh, samurai ranger, whichever one it was. There was only a silver or a gold. I'm just blanking because it's been a few years since I watched that. Um, and then one or two of the, the older rangers, one from Lightspeed Rescue, and I forget where the fourth was from in that group. There was a total of, of five, I think. Four that were along the back wall with the others, and then Steve Caradinus, who was in Mighty Morphin for a bit, um, who was off elsewhere, which is a little odd, but whatever. But... That was it for the celebrity presence. Yeah. Well, in my experience from past conventions and from what I saw in the time we were there, Power Ranger actors tend to just be really great with kids. And given the large presence of kids at this convention, I was really glad if they're going to have a media presence, that's what they went with. One of the things I think characterized this convention more so than probably a lot of, or most of the ones I've been to in the past, was a love of both comics, based by how many back issues we saw there, the toys and stuff like that, but a love of of the characters, the medium, and just, not to say there wasn't a commercial aspect to the show, but that was definitely not in the forefront of it, because, again, a lot of it was about the artists, the art, the comics, the that sort of thing. The cosplay contingent was very impressive. At one point, we saw a group of G.I. Joe characters, Roadblock, Shipwreck, uh, I think Cobra Commander, a few others and such. And there were just a lot of people in a lot of costumes. I saw a really good Arrow costume that was down near when we were at the back of the hall around where the Power Rangers were. Well, and at one point when we were walking around one booth, and I want to say it was the uh, 501... Squadron people. The the 501st Legion, yeah. Yes. They had the backdrops. Yes, that's what I wanted to point out. They had a backdrop of Tatooine. They had one of the hangar bay on the Death Star, one of where uh, the, the hangar where we first see the Millennium Falcon. 
forget what they had on one or two of the other sides. It was a great place for these cosplay people to go have their photos taken. It was, and that's the sort of thing that I would like to see more conventions do. I thought it was brilliant of the, the 501st Legion to do that, but... It needed more space. It needed more space, maybe a little better lighting. But man, can you imagine if DC, say at Comic-Con, had a corner of their booth where they had basically quick swappable backgrounds, mm. like you have at a photography studio, of the Daily Planet uh, building, or the Batcave, or the Justice League headquarters, or Titan's Tower, or uh, Arrow, uh, the headquarters in the Arrow comic, yeah. and stuff like that. Kind of the iconic places that you could put the person in. It's like, yeah, this would cover most of the people who are going to show up. Um, that, I think, would be a cool place to get their photo taken. And... Again, the, the number of people in costume, uh, the number of people that were there because of a, what I felt seemed to be a genuine interest in comics. Yes. was really uh, impressive. Well, and as we were walking by some of the uh, artists and looking at the art they had on display, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the way that not only were they showing the art they'd done, but they were sharing their fandom. Somebody yeah. had done uh, Kaylee from Firefly on a popular mechanics cover. The the magazine covers that booth had, I thought, were really uh, clever, cool, and fit the characters. It's like if you were to take a couple of the magazines from today, kick them forward in time into that universe. So they had that. They had one or two others um, that were pretty good. I thought they had one that had... Was it Mal from Firefly? No, no. It was... Um, there was another one that I remember just stopping and going, yeah, that's that's perfect. It was the Kaylee one on the Popular Mechanics that I was just sitting there going, you know, it's almost shocking no one thought of this sooner. Well, it was a good blend of a really good likeness, a, a really good appreciation of the fan material, good production work. It felt and looked like it would be a suitable magazine cover. Yeah, it so. had the little headlines for the various articles. It had all the details in place. There were a few other places where there were people who had done kind of their rendition of the various incarnations of the Doctor or different um, uh, comic book characters. One in particular was uh, Tony Santiago. He had a, a booth up in the front about an aisle or two off from, from center, I think, uh, to the, the left. And he had just some amazing uh, kind of like, uh, I don't want to say headshots, but like from the bus stop or whatever, mm. of the movie versions of Thor, Loki, um, Captain Cap America, Captain America, Iron Man. I'm trying to think of one or two. Of the, I mean, just a, a bunch of them. They were breathtaking likenesses in 16 by 20s. And it's a case of, I'm glad we came to this convention because when we asked, will you be at San Diego? He said, no, I want to go there, hopefully in a future year. He's going to aim to be in San Antonio. But if we weren't going to these smaller local conventions, we would not have had the chance to see his art. Yeah. And again, he did probably, I would say, some of the best likenesses I saw at the show. Yeah. There were a lot of likenesses to be had in terms of the art and, you know, let's do the Doctor, let's do Firefly characters, let's do, you know, the Avengers or let's do Superman or whoever. There were a lot where you clearly knew who they were drawing, but these were the ones where you did a double take because it's, I know that's not a photo, but that's just so good. He had the ability to capture 
a perfect, near perfect lightness without being photographic quality, if you know what I mean. I mean, it was one of those where it was very clearly hand-drawn, not he's trying to replicate, yeah. you know, paint a photo. But it, he, he really captured the person, not like a caricature. Because there were a couple where it's like, okay, clearly that's the Matt Smith doctor, but there's just it's a little not right in some way. And again, it's a nitpick, because, I mean, all of the art I saw, by and large, was just very, very good. Well, and some amazing. another booth, there was a almost human piece, that I pointed out to you because it was very nice, but it had a divided face and it was so subtle, the two halves, that you knew what they were doing, but it... That one was interesting because it had Kenex on the left and Dorian on the right. Mm-hmm. And it was really great likenesses of each of those actors. And in the middle, it very clearly, you know split down the middle, one side was one character, one side was the other character. But the blending of, of like the skin tones was incredibly smooth where the, the, the nose, the mouth, all the that. eyes were lined up so perfectly. It it looked like one face, but you knew it was two faces blended. And I thought it was was, was breathtaking and it, it was one of those I couldn't tell if I wanted it to have a harder division between the two or even or not. Yeah. Or, it was, again, they... some, some amazing artists were at the show, and I would say probably half the floor, if not more, was devoted to artists. Yeah. And again, part of why I, I, I want to stress why I thought it was a very comic show was I had traded a few emails with the guy before, and he was pointing out what he was trying to do was not a media show, but a comic book show. Well, and this show was so focused on the creativity of the medium, of the people involved. There's no denying without the art and the writing, you don't have the comic books. Well, and there are artists of, of all levels and stuff, including uh, Walt Portasio, who's one of the founders of Image. So, I mean, it's not like this was a bunch of, of no-names or whatever. Um, there were a lot of names I recognized, but I'll be honest, I read a ton of comics. I'd have to go look up, okay, who was doing which, when, and stuff like that. But a lot of, of I'm not going to say, like, it. it's not like it was filled with, you know, Jim Lee, John Byrne, you know, or, or the superstars of all ages or, of, you know, comics or whatever. But it was a lot, a lot of really, you know, known artists, uh, some, some new and upcoming as well. But the fact that the, the show was so not only focused on that aspect of, of comics, but clearly reciprocated by the attendees. Witness, again, the number of people in various costumes and such that, uh, you know, Wizard proved that this this town can, can support a convention. This convention, I think, proved it can support a comic book convention, not just a pop, pop culture kind of a convention. Well, and... There was one booth, and I think it may have been the one that had the almost human piece that had a very nice, and please help make sure I get the character name right, Deathstroke uh, drawing, and it said, you know, Manu's here, this is great for signing. It was a very nice likeness and very well done piece of art, and I can see wanting to couple the two pieces, the the autograph and the experience yeah. with Manu with this very nice piece of art. Well, and it was interesting with Manu because they had him at a table in back 
uh, again, next to the other actors and such like that. And they were at one point interviewing him over the PA system. And I'll be honest, I have very mixed feelings on that. On the one hand, it's cool. I can walk the floor and, you know, follow along on, on the, the Q&A session. Depending on where on the floor you were. Exactly. The PA system in the venue. And again, nothing against the people doing the interview or Manu or the people running the show or anything of the sort. The PA system, there are a couple of places where as you're walking down the aisle, it's like, wow, this is crystal clear audio. I can make out what he's saying. The speakers were perfectly placed for some positions. The acoustics were brilliant for some positions. You can understand why you've gone to concerts at this location when you're in certain positions. Well, the concerts, I don't know, were held in this part of this building. I've been to concerts in that part of the building. Okay, I've only been to one concert there and I wasn't... I don't know the, the venue well enough to know That's where the symphony has done a few concerts. Interesting. What I think was the case was the uh, speakers in, in from the ceiling. There were some places where the sound was overlapping from the two and just enough out of sync because of how far you were from it to kind of muddy it up a little. And again, there were some places it was great. Other places it was not great. Well, and they had not set up the PA system for a prolonged interview, I would assume. I would think they had set up the PA for the occasional announcement. I'm sure the people at the facility didn't set it up the same way they do for the symphony. Oh, that's certainly true. I mean, I, I can't imagine going to the sound quality an audio engineer would do for a symphony for a comic book convention. Yeah. And just, just, yeah, I, that's, that's not going to happen. And the way the acoustics of the room were set up, and there were times when I was listening along to the interview and going, wow, this would be an interesting panel because I've gone to Manu's panels for Spartacus. And I, yes, and it, you've dragged me to one of those before. Yeah. Oh, let's just go into this, this room in San Diego. It, it'll just take a it, it won't be bad. Just come with me, John. And then we see a six-minute trailer for the upcoming season of Spartacus, which had so much blood spewing from various places. Okay, I did concede Spartacus is a show I mostly listen to. In that panel at San Diego, they pointed out they ran out of blood. That's how much they used. Anyways, One of back, my, to, no, back no. to this convention. One of my favorite stories from Manu was when he was saying he and his fellow actor had, you know, basically come straight from set to the airport to fly to San Diego that year. And, you know, they'd cleaned up, they'd changed into civvies, they got into the plane, and because it's such a long flight from uh, down under up to San Diego, they'd been bumped up to a business class, and when they got on the plane, they're given those nice warm towels to clean up, and they're washing their hands, and his fellow actor's hands come uh, got the towel red, like totally bloody, and he's looking over at Manu all embarrassed, and he's saying, you can get all the makeup off, and you're going to scare the flight attendant. Yeah, yeah. He's got a good sense of humor, but the question is, does everybody in the room want to hear all of that or not? I And it was a long interview. It was, and I think if the PA system had been better, that would have helped. Yes. Personally, I didn't mind it being there. But if you're having conversations with other people, it could get a little in the way. It's... I would have enjoyed going to it as a panel. 
from what I could hear, it was interesting. He was talking about the process of voicing a character for an animated show, but I was in a muddy area when he said what it was that was animated, so I didn't catch the title. Well, and that's where it would have benefited from having a scheduled time in a room. If I had been in the room, I would have been paying attention. I would have been there for that versus I just happened to be hearing it as I was walking around. Yeah. So it's a question of focus as much as anything else. Uh, one thing I will say about the general acoustics of the room is it was it was good because it never seemed overly loud because there are times San Diego is just deafening. And there are times I've been at various conventions where it's almost like an echo chamber and there's enough chatter that it, 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 it's loud. Well, and you could always hear the people you were talking to even when the uh, PA and the interview was going on. Yes, they did a very good job with that. We had some good conversations with some people. I particularly enjoyed the conversation we had with the people over at uh, Big Dog Inc. Um, they were there. They were one of the few publishers, really, that were there as a publisher. Zenoscope was there, um, and Zenoscope just had their, I think, 100th issue of Grim Fairy Tales coming out. So they've been around for a long time. Uh, didn't really talk to them. I don't really read much from Zenoscope, whereas uh, Big Dog Inc., I read probably 75-80% of their output, have historically. Um, they just do some, some really fun books, some really interesting books. Critter about a, uh, a college-age uh, superhero who's kind of made it into the Avengers or Justice League of her world. Um, Shaharazab, which just started up... Uh, six months ago thereabouts and that 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 frankly is a hard one to to explain because it's got a female lead of Scheherazade who's the the storyteller from uh was that the thousand and one Arabian Nights um the brilliance of this series is they can take it and have it hop genres and they've done it a few times um you know you want to do a a, a pirate type story great you you can do that you want to do western done there you want to do a space thing boom go there and it it has the potential of keeping the, the character and the title fresh over time, yet still having a narrative continuity uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, they've also done Penny for Your Soul, which is a series around... I mean, the basic premise of, of the original miniseries, and they've done a couple building on it, was there's this casino where their shtick, if you will, is they'll pay you $10,000 of, of casino credit for your soul. You know, spend it on a show, spend it on a show. You want to go gamble it away, gamble it away. You want to go, you know, do something else with it. This is Vegas. You know, you can. And people are like, ha-ha, that's, that, that's a clever advertising gimmick. That's great, except you're actually signing away your soul. And there's this whole heaven and hell thing from just a religious uh, uh, perspective in terms of morality, right, wrong, heaven, hell, the war between them, that kind of a thing. It's, it's fascinating. Um... Well, and all of the art that I was seeing at that booth was just very, very attractive. It really drew you in with the covers and made you want to look at these books. And they had some trade paperbacks out on the table. And you just wanted to see more of what are these characters. Um, I want to say Joan of Arc was on that table as well. Joan of Arc is a series they just launched at uh, C2E2, actually, while we were there. And that's spinning out of the Penny for Your Soul title, or that, that part of it. Um, and that looks to be very exciting in terms of the, the Joan of Arc stuff. It, it seems like it might have a, I want to say a Tomb Raider-ish quality, but from the, the prologue I read, it seems like there are all these artifacts that she has essentially stolen from the people who had acquired them, 
what powers do they have, what can they do, you know, all they've they've got some great stuff. I, I really recommend people going to their website and checking out all of their books. Um, because they've got a few others that I haven't mentioned, In Crowd, uh, Legend of, of Oz in the Wild West. You know, this could have just been a really okay, great, you're taking Oz, you're putting it in the Wild West, that's it, got it, boom. They've turned it into, uh, it was a seven-issue miniseries, it's been, after that, an ongoing title for around 20 issues, had a couple of spin-off miniseries, one of which, their version of the Scarecrow, is essentially a mute Indian girl, like cowboys and Indian, just to be mm-hmm. clear, it's the West. Yes, yes. Um, since she can't talk, she has to kind of mime, pantomime, and, and that sort of thing to get her point across. She was the lead character for a two or three issue miniseries, and man, the artist nailed it. Facial expressions, nice, clean, almost minimalist line, uh, line work and stuff on the art, but how she was able to get her, her uh, point across what she was thinking, feeling, etc., all conveyed through the art. And again, how Big Dog is able to find such talented artists and frankly keep them in so much as, I mean, they've got great material to work on with the scripts and stuff, so don't get me wrong there. But typically that, I don't say that level of publisher, but the, frankly that level of publisher, I mean, you've got the, the, the small press, kind of the, the guys who would go to staple. Mm-hmm. Then you've got kind of that next level where they are known around, you know, known publishers that have been around for a while, but don't have huge outputs. Okay, I would put Zenoscope, Big Dog Inc., Red Five, a uh, number of publishers like that in this area. Then you've got a little above that, the top end of that really, of Boom and Dynamite. Anything where you start to have over about a dozen or two titles, really, I would say that's that next level up. So you've got baseball analogies. You've got the major leagues, DC, Marvel. You look outside of, of the, the comic shops, Archie. Uh, then you've got the, the minor leagues, Dark Horse, Image, uh, IDW, Boom and, and, and Dynamite and Valiant kind of at the either the bottom end of that or the, the top end of the farm teams. Mm-hmm. And again, I would put Big Dog Inc. In, in the farm team thing. And just in terms of size and scope, but their quality is consistent. It's well done. And like I was, I was telling the guy, I really think them going to this kind of convention, because they're going to be at San Diego. We saw them at, at C2E2 and stuff, um, is smart because they've got solid material. They cover a wide genre of stuff. People walking that hall, some of them may think, Hey, you've got a, 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 a Legend of Oz thing. That's cool. I like Oz. They may say, oh, it's a Western. Mm-hmm. I like Westerns. Oh, you've got something that's a superhero thing. Great, I want that. You've got a, a, a horror book. I, you know, so many fans of so many different sorts of things are going to be walking through that kind of convention, convention floor. It's also going to be a bit more predisposed to being comic book reader types than I think a lot of other conventions. That I thought it was just hopefully a great opportunity for them that really pays off. Well, and that was a booth that had a lot of really great canvas banners on the back wall of it that you could see as you were approaching and just sit there going, wow, that art looks really great. What is that title? I would say having those banners as the backdrop of the booth is is a, a very smart move on multiple counts. One, it makes it very clear this is Big Dog Inc. right, right here. Two, wow, they've got some nice art. Gee, I recognize that character. Or I don't. I want to know more. Who's doing that? Whatever. Something to talk to and talk about or to get people intrigued by. 
but also at the bottom, www.bigdoginc.com. Mm-hmm. Boom. I know where I need to go for more information. Um, again, this publisher has been around five years, thereabouts, and I've been following them, I think, the entire time. I'd have to actually go look at their complete output. I can name it, two or three titles I'm not getting from them, but again, I've gotten a, a large percentage of their output in consistent quality. Um, and I like how periodically, like they did with Critter, they did a $1 kind of jumping on issue. And that was one that uh, Drew and I reviewed on the show. And I'm like, gosh, is he going to like this or not? I mean, this is kind of an 80s vibe. I love it, but maybe that's just my sensibility. I could see where not every comic is for everybody. That's wound up. He loved it. He's added it to his thing. And it's like, uh, for a dollar book, it's not hard to get somebody to try it out. Yeah, and that's a great idea that a lot of publishers don't take advantage of. The do something to get people hooked. Well, they they took on the risk by lowering the price, and they took advantage of it by putting a very accessible story in the issue. So, they're doing a lot of things right. They're they're a publisher I very much want to see successful, both because they're doing good things and because I think the major growth opportunity for comics is at that end of the publisher spectrum because they're able to do things a little more nimbly, a little more quickly, certainly a lot more creator and character focused than just, okay, here's a corporate property, we're going to trust you with it, provided you do exactly what we want for the next couple of story arcs or whatever. And I, I can't tell you how many books, and DC is probably the bigger culprit of this at the moment, that are, in the first issue, there's something in the writing that pretty much indicates at least the writer thought, yeah, this probably wasn't a great idea, but let's just go with it. That's what they want. You know? Um, certainly Justice League 3000 had that. It's clones of the Justice League in the year 3000. And they basically point out, yeah, this is original. It's, like, yeah, it's, it's well done, it's well executed, and that's great, but I think you get a bit more out of creators when they are just wildly passionate about the story they're telling. Well, and we were talking with one of the writers. Of uh, Scheherazade. Yeah. And she was very passionate about what she was doing, very interested. Uh, I mean, she she basically joined the conversation when she had overheard me mentioning it. And she was saying, oh, I wonder if he's going to like it or not. You know, it's like, okay, that's, that's funny. You know, and that's, I think it's great when the creators can be at the show and get the interaction with the fans, find out what's working for them, what's not working for them, and sometimes take that with a grain of salt, sometimes take it to heart. It depends on the, the feedback and if you agree with it as a creator or not. Um, again, I, I've uh, been reading that since it started, and I, I love the the setup of the series, how they can genre hop, and they're telling just some fun stories. Well, and from our conversation with them, it sounded like they were concerned about telling good stories, and that's very important. I would say not only are they telling good stories, but uh, at some point I, I need to get you to read Penny for Your Soul, the first seven-issue miniseries, because it's a deeper story with religious, I don't say overtones, but philosophical aspects. Is this right? Is this wrong? You know, it, it, it's very much... Uh, I don't say religious debate, but exploration. It's something that I think you would like. Mm-hmm. And again, well told, well done. So the fact that they were there, had a good presence, had a really good booth, had their books and trades out there. You wanted something, I'm willing to bet they had it there. That's smart. 
Yeah. I, I again, really respect them as a, a publishing company. The people there we talked to today were really fun to talk to, very nice people. Um, that's a, a company that I've mentioned a ton of times on the podcast here. I like what they're doing. I think other people will, too. So, you know, again, check them out. I've mentioned them a couple of times, uh, www.bigdoginc.com. Um, if you look at the, uh, the history of the weekly comics spotlight, we've, uh, over the years, talked about a number of their titles. Critter was probably the most recent. Um, again, Zenoscope was there. Uh, the, uh, uh, the only other publisher that was there, and I, I really hesitate to mention them, it was kind of the remains or the resurrected remains of Devil's Due. And that's, they were a big publisher at one point. I mean, okay, you're not big into comics, I know this, but at one point they were doing G.I. Joe, Transformers, I think. Um, they had big thing, they were out of Chicago. Uh, they hit some rocky uh, times, uh, maybe didn't pay some of their creators, and mm. maybe things kind of spiraled out of control pretty quickly, And but now they're trying to get it back going again and such. Um, maybe they can do that, maybe they can't, but as long as they pay their creators, that's to me the important things, Yeah. including any they, if they still owe any money, I don't know if they do or not, I really haven't followed. Um, but I know enough people... Who, who are in the industry, including a couple who work out of Chicago and such, uh, including, I think, some that did work for them at one point, that just the whole concept of not paying creators is bad, and the fact that it could have hurt people I know, oh, come on. Yeah. Inexcusable. Um, but again, most of the, the floor at, at Capital City Comic Con was artists. Along the rightmost wall as you walk in, that's where they had a lot of the uh, the vendors, the retailers. There were a lot of toy places. There were, yeah. I was I was amazed how many had a lot of the the Japanese Gundam. There was some some of the Sentai stuff. Uh, matter of fact, I showed you two of the uh, Power Ranger figures mm -hmm. um, that uh, are done by the SH Figure Arts. I'm a big fan of these because they're they're really nice looking and crazy articulated. You can get them into pretty much every signature pose the character has in the show. Now, if that means you've got to repose the hand, great. Pop it off, pop another one on, they've got a half dozen for you. Um, it's frankly spoiled me on most other figures. Mm. And I'm not the only one. I was watching uh, HD uh, Toy Theater on YouTube, and that guy's been reviewing some of the Justice League War figures. And I, I've listened to this guy review a lot of stuff. He's usually very excited about it and, you know, tell, talks about how the paint's done, if it's well done, what it's not, what kind of articulation. It's a video, so he shows it, shows the different accessories and whatnot. And there, not only are these reviews he's doing on those short, but there's also kind of a, yeah, this is the, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but it's, here's the flash, doesn't have any ankle articulation. And yeah, the uh, paint's okay on this one, but, but if you're going to get it at the shop, make sure you get one that's well painted. You know, implying they've got quality control. They've yeah. Black Anyways, so tons of action figures to be had at this convention, and it seemed to not be the here's the uber expensive chase version either. No, there was a lot of the five dollar get each of the Star Trek characters. I know some of the next gen figures from back in the 90s at at least two of the booths, which intrigued me. To be clear though, it wasn't blowout excess excess stock either. 
No, I don't think so. It was, for those of you who missed them when they were available way back during season one of Next Gen. Because I was noticing a couple of, like, the DC figures that had, like, Uncle Sam, uh, Black Mask, and a few of those, and they were going for, like, 30 bucks. So there were some that were sought after, and therefore have some value. There were some other things that are just hard to find and therefore can't acquire any value. Um, It didn't seem to be like some shows where it's like, Somebody cleared out a dead toy store's stock room and is just trying to get some money on stuff. That, yeah, really? Or some of this where it's like, you want what for that? Yes, it's rare, it's chase, and has only been out 30 minutes, but really? Well, and two of the booths that caught my eye, and I think you know we're going to be seeing more and more of at conventions in the coming years, was the MakerBot booth and the one where we saw... Uh, people standing on a platform that did 360 degrees. Which... Now, I first saw MakerBot two years ago in San Diego over in Artist Alley. And if I had had the spare money at the time, or felt like I did, hmm. actually, I don't think I did at the time, I probably would have bought it. Glad I didn't. This one was a MakerBot 2. I think there are even newer ones out since then. At some point, I may get a 3D printer if I can find a place to put it and an excuse to buy it. Well, and I think what this booth was advertising is what they were doing with the MakerBot, if I understood correctly, was basically a, we'll, we'll make a skin for the toy. It seemed to be a very blocky action figure with minimalish artic- articulation that they would customize for you. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's that's cool. Again, I just talked about how crazy articulated yeah. the action figures I'm into are, so you can imagine what I thought of yeah. a more minimalistic one. But the other booth you mentioned, there was also one of these at C2E2 that we saw. And basically, they put you on a, uh, a platform that does a slow 3D rotation, or 360 rotation, as a connect uh, depth scanner uh, is scanning you, and they get a full 360 uh, uh Image. Image or, or object model of you, 3D model, that they can then print out at various heights or whatever. Uh, it's something I've been very tempted by. They had one on the table of samples of, you know, this is what we can do, that I thought, you know, this this is incredibly clever, and if they aren't going off to uh, bridal shows and showing this one, I'm surprised. It was a girl holding up a sign that said, yes. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of classic keepsake. Uh, the people who were there when we walked by, it was a woman and her two kids. Yes. And they were holding hands and kind of, I guess you would say, in a triangular pose, if you will. They were all facing out from center. Yeah, yeah. shoulder to shoulder and holding hands. And... Uh, from the reaction of the youngest child, it had taken a little while for to go 360. It does. Um, uh, but they had clearly enjoyed this opportunity to make something that they will keep for decades to come. That's a statue of the three of them. I, I was tempted by it, it uh, in, in C2E2. Uh, this one was a little tempting, too. If they have something like that, either at San Diego or... Um, the the Chicago, uh, not the Chicago, the Wizard World, San Antonio. At some point, I may do something like that. It's something where I would recommend 
anyone, whether you want to get one of these statues for yourself or not, go check out the technology and see what they're doing. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, 20 years ago, give or take, on, uh, I want to call it the TV show Street Fighter, where the guy had that form-fitting suit and he rode the motorcycle. Street Hawk. Was it Street Hawk? There you go. Thank you. Uh, it was starring Rex Brown, who later became Daredevil in his first live-action appearance, I believe, in uh, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, maybe? If anybody has ever wondered why I podcast with John Mayo, it is so he can correct me on all of these things. I'll correct you even if we're not podcasting. <laughs> you know that. So in uh, this TV show, when they wanted to make the form-fitting suit. Oh, right. I remember that now. <laughs> they basically put him into like a, a, a huge vat or something and put foam all around him. Yes. Yeah, that was and, my how times have changed in 30 years. And I remember when the foam got up to his neck and he was saying, what now? And they said, now we make the headpiece. And the foam kept coming in. Yeah. You know, so go check this out and see the non-foam version of how we do it now. The funny thing is I've got a uh, PrimeSense scanner, which is just a USB version of, of the same Connect. This is the earlier Connect, not the uh, the one for the new Xbox One or whatever the hell the new one is. Um, that's higher res, and I think I've even got the software. I don't have a 3D you know, or uh, 360 rotation platform or whatever, or the patience to set up, calibrate, and get the software working for all that. I mean, there's well, some skill that's involved there. And that platform was designed to handle three people. I mean, albeit one adult and two children, but that platform ran smoothly with three people standing on it after uh i saw that i guess at c2e2 I, I did some research on youtube and a lot of people have some some fairly clever ideas as to how to make that kind of equipment to do all of that for you know 3d product rotations or whatever um but i thought uh these guys come into the, the convention and having that booth their prices seemed reasonable get exactly what they were but it was not oh my god it's, uh, I need to think about it a little. Well, and I noticed the colors were not bold and sharp colors. They were more of a, a muted colors, but they the, looked uh, appropriate to the statues. The MakerBot does, uh, uh, I forget the technical term for it, but basically melts plastic and prints it kind of sort of like an inkjet printer. This sort of a thing, what they do is they send it out um, to another place, probably Shapeway or something like that, that's going to essentially do a sand deposit-ish sort of a thing. So you color the sand and glue it all together and build it up that way. You know, and I was going to say it looked more like a sandstone type. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So you get a little less clarity, if you will, on the color, but you get color. It's a little bit more abrasive to the touch and a little... Um, it's more of a put it on the shelf and look at it, not a toy. I would say it looks like those, I don't want to say the statues you see in a Hallmark store at the holiday season, but it it looks like one of those classic display pieces. It's a display piece, but it's not one of those that has that shine and, and cut gloss to it. No, definitely. But again, it's, it's a something I've, I've thought about, and I thought it was cool it was there, because I could definitely see some people that were in like a costume or something like that being tempted by it. Oh, I think it would be awesome for the cosplayers, definitely. 
Yeah, it's the kind of thing, if a convention sets up an area for that sort of a booth, the green screen booth, and things of that nature where you would, the, the, the cosplayers would kind of naturally migrate to and such like that. Something where there's room for photo bubbles. Well, and that was the one downside to those canvas backdrops that the uh, 501st had, was they were on the outer edge of their booth, right on the walkways. So people gravitated to them, and then the photo bubbles filled the aisles. Okay, for those who don't know uh, what a photo bubble is, it's a, a term we use. We've coined after going to Comic-Con in San Diego for decades. Where basically, you're walking down an aisle. Somebody's in costume, somebody goes up to them and says, Can I take your photo? Oh, of course you can. What then occurs is the person taking the photo steps back a couple of feet from the person whose photo is going to be taken. Oh, yes, please get at least six feet away from me so you can get my elegant shoes that perfectly match my headpiece. Get the full costume, the big wingspan of Hawkman, whatever it is. But basically everybody else stands back as, oh, a photo is being taken. That's important. And I get to get a photo too, don't I? Please, I have my camera also. Once a photo bubble st starts, it, it, it expands a bit. It, it is at least a eight-foot radius diameter, diameter actually, uh, and is enough to block most aisles. C2E2 had huge aisles, which helped. But then once it starts, somebody, oh, what's going on there? Oh, they're taking... Let me, oh, I oh can, I, can I get... Oh, will you pose with my child? They're adorable. And then by the time that's starting to wind down, somebody else in costumes walked by. You've already got your camera out. And you know your costume and their costume would look perfect together. Oh, and you know, if you pose like this... Oh, yes. Do you have a signature pose? It's one of those things that... It's, it's wonderful to see the costumes. It's wonderful to see the photos happening. But when it stops traffic for 10 minutes, and then five feet later, another one stops traffic for 10 minutes, and then five feet later, you get a tiny bit tired of it, and you wish there was a, an official place with good backdrops. And you weren't... I feel bad when I'm in the background of someone else's photograph of someone in cosplay. Only once has somebody being in the background of my photo really bothered me. That was when I was taking photos at the Inkworks booth, I think it was, in San Diego a couple of years back when Andy Hallett was doing the karaoke. Andy Hallett uh, died way too young. Uh, he died a number of years ago. He played the host on Angel. He was a demonic karaoke bar host who could like read people when they sang and stuff like that. He was also very charismatic, a really talented singer. He was a fantastic guy. He had this knack when he ran that karaoke at Inkworks for being able to tell who could sing and who wanted to do it and who just was so excited and so giddy about the opportunity to do it that they were going to choke on every other word. And he could tell who needed backup and who didn't need backup? Who needed support and who was going to shine in their own right? He, and he helped everyone shine beautifully as a result. He did. He, he encouraged them. He supported them. He made sure the focus remained on them. Always. And he was unbelievable the way he worked that crowd. I ran up to him, ran into him up in artists, uh, sorry, in the autograph area at one point. He was with one of the people from Inkworks, 
and he was standing behind me in line to get an autograph from someone else. And I turned around and I'm like, I was watching you do karaoke and I really enjoyed it. And we start talking and I stayed after to talk with the gal from Inkworks while he was getting the autograph. And she said that he'd very politely asked, I know we have a schedule and I know I promised to do the karaoke so many times, but do you think it'd be okay if I got an autograph from someone up under the sails? <laughs> and so she'd taken him up and she's, she'd offered to introduce him if he was, you know, feeling a little shy about doing the fanboy thing himself. And he was amazing. He, he was one of the breakout characters on the Angels show. And I think he got that role, from what I've read, uh, based on some of the stuff he does in L.A. Or not does, did. did. Uh, unfortunately, no longer with us, which sucks because the guy was so crazy talented. Um, I'm not into karaoke at all. I'm not really going to Comic-Cons to listen to other attendees sing. But that was such a, a riveting show. It was he, he sucked in the crowd. They managed the crowd really well. Inksworth's booth at that point had room for the crowd. Yeah, they managed to keep the majority of the karaoke and the karaoke crowd in their booth. They managed to do so much of it without blocking aisles, which was impressive. So going back after all of that to yes. my original point of why somebody in the background bothered me when I took a photo at that point, their flash went off right as my camera was taking the photo. All I get is this big bright light right there, and it's like, what are the odds of that timing? So, long story short, actually, short story long, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. But one of the things I did notice at this convention, and again, this is on the people running the various booths, is none of them really had the room for any sort of a thing in their booth. Most of the booths were the usual 10 by 10 booths. For most people, I think that was perfectly good. I think uh, Zenoscope, and I know Big Dog Inc. had you know, multiple booths. They had a bit more space to spread out, and I think that worked well. Uh, nobody was really doing anything in the booth that was mandated they would have a large crowd most of the time. Uh, Manu was probably the exception. I think they built up a, an autograph line for him at one point. Yeah. Um, there were a few booths, for, uh, the the Allstate or whatever, the insurance company. And State few, Farm. State Farm, sorry. My, my mistake. It's so bad for me to get an insurance company wrong. They had, like, these tent-type things that they would have at, like, a radio, you know, uh, oh. thing out at the park or whatever. Oh, but the foam hats were kind of cute. The foam the foam uh, uh, cowboy hats were, were interesting. I um, almost let the, the nice man who said he would call me with his nice phone voice <laughs> call me just because I thought the foam hat was cute. There are a couple of vendors at most conventions these days that have nothing to do with the convention, but they want to share, sell you insurance, cell phone service, some sort of high-tech new payment plan. That's what we found out about ISIS originally. Yes. Um, the other one this time was actually very... Oh, but you did forget one before you get to that one. The chance to either win four movie tickets or a trip to a resort. Yes, now you may go with the one that was actually kind of interesting. This is one of those, if, if you want a little bit of con advice, be careful making eye contact with the people behind the booth. This actually, I stand corrected, was the one booth that had a place for people to come in, sit down, and, and participate in their thing. 
And that's why it was worth participating in listening to. You got to sit down for a few minutes. This was High Dow, uh, High Dow International, high-dow.com if you really want to go. Um, and it, it's one of those I had mixed feelings. They do, they have a, uh, an electronic acupuncture type system. Yeah, he It's kept, not actual acupuncture. Yeah. It's, they, they basically they, they, got me to sit down, stuck electrodes on my back. Yes. And had this little tiny, smaller than cell phone size device that was basically powering those to go, you know, spasm the muscles in certain ways to relieve stress, do other things. It was allegedly a massage of your back that you did not volunteer for. Though, I will give him credit. As he was attaching the electrodes, he did ask you two very important questions in all seriousness. Are you pregnant? No, I'm not. And do you have a pacemaker? Not that I'm aware of. And then proceeded to electrocute me. No, uh, it was interesting because, I mean, first off, hard sell. And I don't blame the guy. He was actually reasonably nice. He was a very nice guy. He was very he was polite pushy, about all of but it. But he was sort of. I mean, frankly, no worse than we got later in the day at Walmart when we walked by the uh, I direct guess, TV. The direct TV people. Um, but it was interesting because they had a, a nice color brochure that I've got here of the 15 million different things that may be conditions that may be assisted with this. Yeah, it was a list of all the different pressure points that you could attach the electrodes to. And basically, the theory is you have to attach both of the electrodes. And they also had a set of flip-flops, if you will, that you could put on your feet to uh, massage them. But well, they it, put them on your hands. They put them on their hands. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm thinking, I shouldn't have done that one. Because I had both my hands in it. And, you know, it was starting to twitch a little on the on the right arm that I've had rebuilt. Um, but I, this, this will... Apparently solve or may assist on everything from anorexia, asthma, amnesia, um, paralysis. Arthritis. Arthritis was mentioned. Migraines was mentioned. He had all kinds of things this was going to help you with. Deafness. I was going to give one, but I didn't think I could pronounce it. Then I read what it was. We're not giving that one. A variety of ailments. Let's go with that. But, you know, electronic gizmos of some sort or another at these sorts of things, uh, not unusual. You've got a crowd that is open to, to ideas, open to technology. Um, well, it was at uh, the Austin Wizard, I believe, just last year that we saw the... Uh, I think it was two or three years ago where we saw the cat ears that it reacted was, to the brainwave. Yeah, thing. I think it was just last year because I got the flyer for our future neurosurgeon. I thought um, we had seen that before we went up to go see her. And maybe we just... No, that you went to yours. Uh, you went to yours. Okay. But yes, it was the cat ears that were reacted to the brainwaves. Well, and, and C2E2, they had the drone... That was a quadcopter, a little tiny thing. You could get a camera built into it or attached to it, whatever. Um, and I will admit that that uh, I didn't cover this in the C2E2 convention, but I did buy that. I've since nicknamed it, not that I've played with it much, but CrashBot 3000. Because I apparently, do, I am not of the video game generation, apparently. Um, it's got the remote control with two little throttles on it, and I would flip it 
I, I would get the throttle a little too much and flip over. At this point, I would like to ask any listeners out there if you have advice on navigation of the CrashBot 3000, please, please post it for John on the forum because I intend to encourage him to take it to Monument Valley later this month. It's actually Thank a you. great idea. I should take it because we'll have some places. Where, I mean, part of it is I just don't have a big open enough area to really get used to how to control the thing. It was fun. It was not that much. It was actually a great deal. Yeah, go um, ahead and mention the... What, 100 bucks. It was $100. Not that I'm confessing to being the bad influence who encouraged But she him. is. Uh, but yes, the CrashBot 3000, which has an actual name that I do not know. Microdrone 2.0. It's actually a really cool thing. And it's not that it crashes, it's that I crash it. And yes. when you when I watched the couple of videos, it's like it's... Because it, I would just try to hover it off the floor and... It would start migrating in a given direction, so I'd try to compensate for that, and I'd compensate a little too much, have to compensate back, and then at some point I would overcompensate, and it would just flip over entirely. It's okay, it did over. not come with the driver's egg course. Well, it came with instructions. But I just not... need training. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's it came with, it was the drone, a camera attachment... Uh, and spare batteries. Two spare batteries. And I want to say there was one memory card that was a very small amount of memory, but one memory card included. And it was $100. So it was a very good deal. Uh, the batteries only last like eight minutes. Yeah. So that's why you wanted the two spare. I wanted you to have the two spare batteries. Um, but I think Monument Valley, which we're planning to drive through, as I said, later this month would be an amazing place to not lose the drone if we have somewhere that's got a nice wide open place that uh we're not at risk of crashing into somebody else or whatever uh, it's worth trying it's it's interesting and again that's the kind of stuff that going to these conventions it's fun just to see what's out there that's that's new that's different that's you never know what you'll discover at these conventions and that's what i love about them in it, terms of you'll discover the art You'll discover what they're sharing with some of the most open-minded consumers because a lot of these people who go to these conventions consume science fiction and all of these great things. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the convention itself in so much of how it was run and a few things like that from what I noticed. Okay. Because first-year convention, I've been to a couple of conventions where frankly there were things that were just a complete train wreck how did that happen what was going on i don't think there was any of that here there was opportunities for some improvement but when we first drove into the parking garage at the the palmer event center there were uh state troopers there to pause the traffic so the people who needed to walk on the, the walkway before the entrance could do so safely i'm like you know is that really needed you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't care. They made the right call of having it. Exactly. I'd rather they err on the side of safety. It was a little disorienting of why is a state trooper stopping every third car before we go into the parking garage? Because the first few times he did, we didn't see pedestrians. I thought he was throttling getting people into the parking structure. It wasn't until Black Canary walked across our path. And then you gotta thank the state trooper for stopping traffic for Black Canary. How cool is that? And again, particularly after the death in San Diego uh, a year or two back. Too true. They did the right call. Mm -hmm. And whether that was mandated by the venue or was the choice of the show organizer, 
don't know, don't care, all credit the show organizer for, for caring about the, the people coming to the show. Uh, there were also a lot of kids, uh, teenagers and whatnot, so I think that's another thing that, hey, they may not be looking out, let's look out for them, whatever. It's I, I appreciated that. Well, and I would say on the kids' aspect, well-behaved kids. It was a venue and a convention where the kids were welcome. There was nothing. We've been to conventions where somebody had to go around saying, hey, cover up this part of this art, etc., etc. There was nothing like that where there was a section where kids were unwelcome. Well, that's, that's a good point because if there was anything that was risque or inappropriate, I didn't see it or notice it. And kudos to the showrunner for that yeah because i've been to a couple where it's like you know i'm not the least bit offended by that but there are kids here and it does nobody any good for somebody to flip out of my kids saw what where why you know we went to a convention 10 years ago where no i was not personally offended but i did point out to the person running the convention you know the first thing a person with a kid sees when they walk through the door doesn't necessarily need to be a body painting booth with a woman wearing no shirt. How about the year in San Diego they had an anatomically correct female action figure? And it was very clearly, I know this because the sign that you could read from 40 feet away was pointing out that feature. And I'm like, really? Center aisle of San Diego? It was better than the the time they had the one block that was basically the pornography block. And I don't mean basically as in it seemed like pornography. It's like that's literally what the booths were at that, that that I am not placing any judgment. I am not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying if you're running a family show, mm-hmm. run a family show. If you are not, put that in an area that people aren't going to stumble across it as they just go down the next aisle. Well, and like I said, in the case of the body painting, all I pointed out to the person running the show was, it's the first thing you see as you walk through the main entrance. You know, if San Diego or some other show wanted to have a room that was a little set off to the side, you had to go through a different set of doors to get in, that's the mature stuff. Fine. Mm -hmm. That way people can go or not go, and they know what they're getting into when they go there. No problem. So the fact that there was zero of that, as far as I could tell... I was unaware. The only thing I was aware of that you would have to show your driver's license for was oh, yeah. one concession stand. And so, so we're going down. We get there. We're going down the rightmost aisle. It's like, okay, there's the concession in the front corner. It's like, ah, we, we just ate. We don't need to get a drink or whatever. We're walking down. I have to kind of dart around because the, the aisle kind of... The they went straight up and down, which annoyed no. me. That always annoys me. I'm very, I want to go in a straight line, thank you. Um, I want it to be like a, 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 a reasonable grocery store. Go up one aisle, down the next, up the next, down the next, up the next. Anyways, so we're, we're, we're jutting around a thing to get back into that rightmost aisle again. And we're up against, not up against, we, we, we're staring right at this concession stand. It's like, if you need vodka, we've got vodka here. And I'm like, really? Yeah. And I think more and more conventions are having a place where you can get alcohol. I'm now aware of at least... I think they had it at C2E2. They had it at C2E2, and I'm aware of two other conventions that have alcohol on the convention floor. Again, not casting any judgment or stuff. That was one thing, though, particularly with the number of kids and stuff. That it just surprised me. It and struck me as odd. Um, 
if it's needed, if it makes money, whatever, so be it. But now, the flip side to that is it was not by the food stands. It was isolated in the center of that wall away from where the kids were going to go grab snacks. True, true. It was a little further down uh, that the other corner had the convention or uh, concession stand mm-hmm. uh, full of everything that would kill us because, of course, gluten-free. Yeah, the joys uh, of celiac. Yeah, dairy-free for me as well. But anyways, the fact they had concessions in the different corners, they seemed to be easy to get to place to sit down and eat um, they seem to have plenty of seating for those who wanted to grab a seat have something to eat um i don't know i didn't think to check on the acoustics in the seating area during uh manu's interview and i interesting should've. that would have been a good idea i didn't think about that either i was gonna say the signage for getting the badges was poor but it was actually very good it was just on the outside of the building and i think they should have replicated it on the tables when you actually went in I didn't see it on the outside. I waited till I was inside to look. I, I had noticed it, but it was a little unclear. Only one set of doors was open. I went through that. And so we had to ask where to get a press badge. They immediately knew where to send us. We went there. They immediately had that. So that was mm-hmm. that was great. I was very pleased with that. I was a little worried. It's like, man, did I drop the ball on this? Did I not contact her? You know, do I not have a company? You know, I, I'm paranoid. I, I would have figured, ah, oh, you got to go buy one. So I'd grumble, grumble, go pay. But, well, and badge pickup and wristbands for everyone seemed to be going very quickly and very smoothly. I didn't see anyone having slowdowns or complaints on that. Now, maybe earlier in the day, maybe Friday, there were issues, but none that I've heard of. Mm-mm. And the fact that it seemed to be fairly quick, easy, and they were attentive and, and on top of things, kudos to that. Definitely. That's, that's an easy thing to mess up on in terms of logistics, and they didn't. Um, and the fact that it was very clear, you walk in the door, you get your stuff, you walk into the other door, you're good, you're in the hall. Uh, the one thing that was interesting um, is they stopped you to, to check your bag. I had a messenger bag with me that I, you know, on the off chance that I could get a, a nice view of the exhibit hall. And at C2E2, uh, they had the concessions area kind of in the center of the hall up above so you could look out over the exhibit hall and get a picture of how big it was and there you, was you took those photos i still haven't looked at them i need to because i'm curious you need to. i never made it up to there yeah um well i like being able to see just how big was this because in the case of this capital city convention it felt very easy to walk. It felt like a good-sized floor. It felt like you could remember, yes, this is where I want to go back to, which to me is always important because in San Diego, I can never remember how well, to find the, the booth. San Diego was a hall that just goes on and on and on. This was one that was, like you said, easy to navigate. There were a few things that were a little high, but none that were like you can't see anything to the other end of the hall kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, with staple. That's something where it's all really just tables. There are really not much in the way of backdrops. Last I went, I've, I don't go to it every year because it's it's more more indie and more small press than I tend to be into uh, usually. And again, this is one that you had probably the banners going up what eight ten feet or whatever. Um, but I I would have liked to have had something where I had the ability to see from a slightly higher vantage point all of it. Mm-hmm. Or if as I had walked in, I had gotten a one page. Here's a map of the place. Um, I like having the lay of the land going into a situation that's just the way I am. And again, I tried to get that from their website this morning, but it was having some minor technical problems. Again, opportunity for improvement. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and like I said, the only things I really had in the messenger bag were the camera, spare battery, uh, my cell phone. So they had me open each pocket of the bag. They looked through it at security. And what amused me was I had seen the table and the guy behind it who looked to be security-esque. And they had some uh, pink things on it. I thought it was a bag check, as in you uh, leave a bag there kind of bag check. Yes, so yes. So when they said, go to bag check with your bag, I'm like, really? What's going on? <laughs> I have not really seen that. Uh, well, I guess at C2E2, they kind of peered in the bag every day or whatever. But it was just open it up, let us look, and, and keep walking. I appreciate when they go to that level. I hope there's absolutely no need for them to go to that level. But I'd rather, again, mm -hmm. take the security seriously versus have some kind of unfortunate event. Um, and again, it didn't slow down getting into the hall at all. Yeah. So things ran smoothly. There seemed to be a lot of people kind of coming and going. A good size crowd without being crowded. So it kind of fit the venue that way. There are a few things that, if I were to nitpick, again, straighter aisles that were easier to methodically walk through, but that's just me. Maybe a little bit more room in one or two key places. Uh, again, a map. But for a first-year show, it was well-organized. It was a genuine Comic-Con. Yes. It, it seemed to meet the goal it set out for itself of being about comics, about the artists and the creators and, and the content. Um, would I have liked to have seen a few more publishers there? Of course. But... It's a regional, it's a city show. It's not mm -hmm. even a regional show at this point. It may grow into that. Um, it, it did well for uh, for first year, again, the number of artists they had there. I mean, they had dozens and dozens of artists. Mm -hmm. um, they, they should be very proud with how the show went. Um, I would say it was a definite success. I think it has definitely shown that there is a... I mean, the, the, the Wizard World shows had shown that Austin, Texas... Is a big enough city to support a convention. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, has a number of potential advantages over Wizard. It's a different show. I mean, Well, they're entirely different beasts because Wizard is... Wizard calls itself Comic-Con, but it's a media and pop culture show. It's divided, and I won't even say equally, between the celebrity presence and the comic and artist presence. Whereas this was a comic book convention. Yeah. And well, and even the celebrities they had, all of them have a very strong comic book connection. Mm -hmm. Got the guy who played Deathstroke. Okay, definite comic connection there. The guy who played Shredder, definite comic connection there. A handful of Power Rangers that currently Power Rangers has its own set of graphic novels coming out. Definite connection there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a bit of a draw. Doesn't seem to take away from what's going on. Again, you also look at the, the Japanese toy culture aspect of the show that was very present there, much to my surprise, and, and uh, uh, was pleased by that. Same audience that would be after the, the, the Super Sentai, the Power Ranger type stuff. So I think it's definitely a show worth checking out. It was a really good show. Anything else, or does that pretty much do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.